it's an honor to be on the Blue Angels. And, and we represent not just the Navy Marine Corps and the country, but I think we represent, you know, inspiration. Welcome back to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. My name is Mike Flynn, and I am honored to be your host. Our mission here on the Impact Entrepreneur Show is not just to inspire you, but also to help you tap into and begin to believe in your God-given potential and purpose. That's right, baby. We want you to not only be inspired, but experience breakthrough. And we do that on this podcast by interviewing incredible people who are using their experiences, their skill set, their platforms to have a game-changing impact in the lives of others. And here's the thing. None of these folks are simply sitting back, living a life of leisure. They have things to do, places to go, and lives to impact. Speaking of that, John Foley has some serious flying skills, but for him, what's truly important as a team member, leader, and mentor is connecting with people, but not just any people, people who have a deep connection to who they are and why they are there. This all began with John's amazing childhood, where he received both wisdom and love from his parents, who created a supportive environment for his dreams. John's father was an army instructor and an army officer at West Point, and John wanted to be just like him until he took his son John to an air show at the age of 12 when John decided he wanted to be a pilot. Of course, there were also rules in John's family, and the self-discipline he developed as a child served him well when he went on to study at the United States Naval Academy. He played college football while he was there and, after graduation, trained as a fighter pilot. Moving up the ranks, he then became an instructor pilot and later joined the Blue Angels, the United United States Navy's Flight Demonstration Squadron, an elite team. John's hairy experiences in the Blue Angels included flying into Russian airspace shortly after the end of the Cold War to do a show and seeing Russian fighter jets coming toward his plane. Fortunately, the Russians were also keen at that point to make friends, and John ended up waving at one of his Russian counterparts from the cockpit. Flying in a squadron means that you and your teammates literally rely on each other to stay alive. And in this episode, John talks about many things, but he talks about why it's so important to hold up your end of the deal and do your job well. He explains that he sees a huge difference between being scared and being afraid. And to him specifically, being scared means, hey, I need to do my job. Everybody else is counting on me and I'm counting on them to do their job. But being fearful means that you have to go into defense mode. Now, John's new book, Fearless Success, is about the secrets of that elite performing team, the Blue Angels, and how everyone, be it an individual, a team in a corporation, a team in a large corporation, a management team, employees, et cetera, can take what they've applied at their elite level as the Blue Angels and apply it wherever you are as part of a daily practice. You can buy Fearless Success from Amazon and other booksellers, but if you actually go to the show notes and you buy the book from John's website, it comes with a free second book called Breaking Beliefs. Some of John's other tips include worrying about performing well, not the outcome. Instead, 
Taking negative thoughts and putting them back into your head so you can focus on what you need to. And the key to doing something difficult is visualization and focus. This part actually is very powerful when he talks about how the Blue Angels sit together and they visualize the performance in advance mentally uh, in, in advance of performing in front of thousands of people. Another, another one of the secrets to success revealed in the book is that he meditates every morning and he says gratitude is so important because gratefulness changes the way you see the world and then the way the world sees you changes too. So bust out your pens and paper, take some notes, and brace for impact with this exciting, fast-moving, high-flying conversation. With John Foley, former lead solo pilot for the United States Navy Blue Angels. John Foley, man, welcome to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. I'm incredibly excited to talk about your book, Fearless Success, which your team was so kind to send me an advanced copy of, and to hear your story about being a lead solo pilot for the Blue Angels. And, and all of the leadership lessons and life lessons that you've learned along the way to getting there. And then beyond that, now doing what you're doing through the Glad to Be Here Foundation and the John Foley organization in general. So welcome to the show. Mike, glad to be here. And thank you for having me on. Yeah, you bet, man. I always kick things off by trying to learn about the origin story of my guests. I think that where we come from is important because it it helps us gain an understanding of where we are so that we can know where we're going. And with that in mind, I would love to know who your childhood hero was. Oh, it's easy. It's my dad. I mean, I love my dad. I wanted to grow up just like him. Uh, we were chatting earlier, but he was an army officer like your dad. And uh, uh, I, you know, he he represented wisdom to me. If you think back to uh, he was the icon of integrity, uh, wisdom, and uh, and just kindness too. I mean, he really had it all. So that was my my idol. Uh, now my mom also was uh, the um, the embodiment of love. So I mean, I think I had an amazing childhood where I had wisdom and love, kind of two sides of the same coin uh, in uh, in my my upbringing. It's critical. Yeah. Now, are you an only child, or you have siblings? Nope, I got an older sister. Okay. Okay. Awesome. Now you're you you recount this story of of you're at an air show with your dad in uh in Germany because that's where you were born. Yes. And you wanted to be like your dad. You wanted to be an army guy like your dad, but you saw this air show going on, and that changed your whole mindset. And and then you started dreaming, right? You started right. dreaming about being a pilot. So. But I want to stay with your dad and your parents for a second because it's both uh, proverbially and figuratively and literally a dream that is in the sky, right? It's sky high. It's a sky high dream. So yes. what did your parents do to cultivate your freedom to dream and pursue big things? I love that. I think the biggest thing was they created a safe environment in the house. And what I mean by that was... Of course, we had rules, and uh, I remember my dad saying, "Get with the program." That meant I was out of parameters, you know. <laughs> but uh, but it was always safe, you know. And uh, uh, they were very supportive. It really didn't matter what I chose to do, whether it was you know playing basketball as a six year old or 
football or sports were always good, but they were always there and supportive of me. School too, they, they showed that you know this is important, but it was a supportive importance. So I felt liberated. I felt like I could do anything and mm-hmm. uh, and be protected. And, and I'll tell you one quick story. It just hit my head. I remember my mom, we were in West Point, New York. My dad was an instructor. I'm probably like four years old, uh, maybe five at the oldest. And all of a sudden, the garbage man comes knocking on my mom's door and says, quick, come quick. Your son's you know, in trouble. It's like, so she's scared and she comes running out. And I'm in the, the playground right backyard and I'm on the monkey bars hanging upside down. You know, and, and, and she looked at him, she goes, oh, don't worry about it. He's fine like that. And she walks away. And uh, I, I, I laugh about that because I don't remember it. But, you know, I love being upside down, flying with the Blue Angels. It's a really. <laughs> So it's kind of happened as a little kid. That's funny. That's yeah. funny. So your dad, I didn't actually realize that, but your dad taught at West Point. Yeah, he was a math instructor. Yeah. What years was he there? Uh, six, well, he, he graduated in 52 and then um, went back as an instructor in 61 through 64. Okay, okay. Yeah, one of my, uh, a, a guy that I grew up with here in Santa Cruz County actually went to West Point, played, for, played inside linebacker for Army. Nice. And, and is now um, about to be promoted to general sometime soon in the in the, um, the 82nd Airborne Brigade. Wow! Yeah. So he, his name is Pat Work. He's a, an incredible leader. But um, wow. yeah, you, you know, probably. You know, the- hold on, real quick. Do you know what t- time frame he graduated from West Point? When did he play ball there? That's what I. Was um, I think he graduated. He either started or graduated in '94 time okay. frame. Yeah, they had a good team those years. I played football for Navy. I don't know if you knew that. But. Oh, oh, I know. We're gonna go there. We're gonna go okay, there. Right. I got you. Uh, but yeah, so he he actually had the opportunity to um, play in the NFL, but he turned it. He turned wow. that. But uh, yeah, probably the only time that you and your dad didn't get along was when there was an Army Navy game going on. Well, actually, it was just the opposite. Is um, he was funny. Because my mom, when I got accepted in Annapolis, and you know my dad was West Point, the day that I got accepted, all the West Point gear went into the closet, and all this Navy gear showed up in the house, right? <laughs> and uh, so she was won over in a heartbeat. Now my dad was, you know, he was still proud of his school, but football days, um, he actually wrote a letter to his classmate saying, you know, I'm sitting on the Navy side. And uh, look out uh, because they got a better team. We never lost to Army the four years I played at Navy. So. Wow. Yeah, yeah, you guys went to two bowl games. We did. Yeah. Yeah. Ohio State. You played, you played uh, defensive back, correct? I did. Yes. Yeah. So, so I want to actually talk about athletics for a second because, because the reality is, is that that was probably the foundation, in, in particular in high school and yep. then ultimately ultimately college, that was probably the foundation for your beginning to develop an understanding of what teamwork really is and what, how there is no, to be cliche, there is no I in team. You could only accomplish championship level efforts if everybody is cooperating together. And that is something that isn't, I don't, that is a learned thing. I don't think that's necessarily something that we all, that we are innately gifted with that understanding. So who were the coaches, both either in high school or college, that helped develop that in you? Oh, I love that. I think back to really the most impactful was when I was young, um, playing, you know, Pop Warner football. We were in Springfield, Virginia, and a guy named Lou Lou Dar. And uh, there was the Dar brothers. I still remember their faces. Two 
brothers, bald as me, right? Okay. And they were, they really coached us. I think I was in fourth grade. So about 10 years old, 10 and 11. And that was the most inspirational time of my football career. Uh, I remember they would give out, you know, uh, rewards. They worked for, remember Hostess Ho-Hos? Remember that? Oh yeah, yeah, totally. Ding-dongs. Yeah, well, we would get, uh, they would give out awards. They worked for that company. And so you'd get a box of ho-hos if you did something well, whether scored a touchdown, whatever. And uh, I just remember um, just how fun that time frame was. So they, those were the, the most impactful. I think with sports, it's interesting. As you go up the chain, you know, whether it's then in high school and then in college and division one and eventually pros for some people, it changes, right? It becomes more of a, a business, less of a, a, a of, of just having fun. And, mm-hmm. uh, and that's at least my, my perspective. I always had fun. I, I think it taught me not only teamwork, you know, how to depend on others, how to trust others, but here's what's critical. You have to do your job. You know, that was the most critical thing. And it's true in the Blue Angels. And it was true in every aspect of business, any aspect of life. Yeah, I'm part of a team. But my biggest responsibility first is do my job and do it well so people can count on me. Whether it's defensive back, I might have the, the, the deep third coverage, right? So I'm not worried about the middle of the field. I got to trust someone else to cover that. But dang it, I'm not going to let something happen on my side of the field. Flying in the Blue Angels, you know, we all had, uh, we're flying close, 18 inches to each other. Uh, and we had set procedures on how to, um, how to do that, but I have to depend on myself first, not hurt somebody else. And then of course, trust them to do the same. So I think team sports are a beautiful um, example of personal mastery and team mastery coming together. You know, that actually requires a lot of discipline, self-awareness, self, self-control to make sure that you're covering your area and trust the other people who are trying to perform at their, their best. Have you always had that or is that something that was cultivated in you through mentors and guidance and coaching? Uh, if you mean trust, I think, I think trust is natural state. Or, you know, or I, discipline, discipline. Discipline. Uh, discipline. I, um, you know, I think, I think it grows and, and you learn discipline. And, and I, I remember um, hearing a speaker once say, discipline is delayed gratification. And when I heard that, I went, oh, that's cool, right? Because... Mm-hmm. When I hear discipline, I'm thinking negative. I'm thinking, crap, I have to do something versus right. delayed gratification is, wow, I get to do something or, you know, mm-hmm. this is going to be a benefit. So I think we learn discipline on different aspects of our life. Uh, and it's usually by the results that are generated, right? Mm-hmm. You get good results. You go, wow, I kind of like that. Let me, let me replicate what worked. You get bad results. You go, maybe I need to debrief and fix this, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so, yeah, um, I think it's cultivated. Uh, I also think by the way, that you gotta have fun. And so for me, a lot of discipline is also discipline to be spontaneous, discipline to have fun in your life. Um, mm-hmm. It's not a rigor. I, 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 that, that doesn't work for me. I've been through that a lot. <laughs> Well, you certainly have had fun throughout your career. I mean, as that's definitely true. as a Blue Angel. I mean, like that's got to be like the funnest job ever. And then, but also playing Division One college football for Navy and going to two bowl games and just excelling. I mean, then you then after you left the Navy, I think you went on to go get a, a master's degree from Stanford. Yeah. So there's no doubt that you are driven, that you mm-hmm. are you're a competitor, that you want to perform at the best. And, and psychologists refer to that as like an intrinsically motivated thing. Is that have you always been intrinsically motivated 
Yes, absolutely. It's funny you brought that up. I never thought of it that way, but yeah, I'm definitely in, you know self motivated intrinsically, and uh, uh, and and it's it's what drives me. It's it's not the outward results. You know mm-hmm. that, that doesn't drive me. That's just the outcome. Um, mm-hmm. What drives me is that inner desire to make an impact. I love your hat, by the way. You know, to yeah. make an impact, make a difference in people's lives, um, and to do it in a way that um, honors the gifts that that I have. You know, be and uh, have fun at it. Yeah. You know, there's a there's an there's an Olympic athlete that I met once uh named Eli Bremer and uh he was a pentathlete. So he competed in five sports and one of the things he was a guest on my show, one of the things he talked about was that we have to stop you have to stop focusing on winning because you can win on accident but you can only be good on purpose. Nice, I like that. And being good involves being in in Incredibly invested in the process, right? And as you said, the the results will speak for themselves, right? You you could not be obsessed with becoming a Blue Angel pilot because you had to do all kinds of things way before that to even put you in the position to be eligible to compete for that. I would imagine, right? So, at what point? At what point actually do you start training? So you're at you're at Annapolis and you know that you you want to be a, a pilot, right? That yep. that's what your childhood dream was. Do do you like put it in an option? Do you get assigned to that? How does that work? At what point do you yeah. start training to be a Navy pilot? Yeah, it's actually after you graduate. They do have like uh, people who are aviation incentive, you know, you could go up on a little airplane air there now and then, but your real training starts afterwards. But to answer your question is it, it matters where you graduate, the rank that you graduate allows you to pick what they call service selection because it's not just pilots. You know, it, actually, most people don't know that Navy has more fighter pilots than the Air Force, right? Um, oh, well. with aircraft carriers and all this kind of stuff. Uh, but there's there's a big contingent. Maybe about 250 people will get a pilot slot, 220, and there's usually a thousand graduating, right? And then there's other stuff. You know, nuclear submarines. There's the SEALs. There's surface. There's you know, the Marines. I mean, you, there's a lot of things you could do. And the way the pecking order goes is, you know, they they grade you every day. Uh, not just academically, military bearing, sports, all this stuff plays into it. And at the end of the day, you're ranked from one to a thousand and you know uh, who's number one and, and who's not. And they just go down the order and uh, whoever is first gets their their choice. And after that, you know, you just hope a uh, slot's left for you. And, <laughs> and so you got to kind of, um, you got to know the game and you got to be willing to work hard to get the opportunity. And I think that's true in life, right? It's, uh, you know, know, know what it, what's required in their stair-step goals. So for me, I just needed a pilot slot. That was the first step, okay? Mm-hmm. And and I got it, but not by a whole lot. I, I finished in the half, allowed the other half of the class to be called the top, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, But I got it barely, you know? And then I just needed up my game because being average wasn't going to work anymore. And then I, I can take you through the whole Navy training cycle if, if you want to know. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, take, take us through that cycle because, you know, in the back of your mind, you've got this, this experience you had when you were 12 at this air show. But you also, it's, what year is it now? At when you... 82 is when I graduated, but the year that I, I had that experience, I was 12 years old. So that would have been like uh, 71. Yeah, so I mean, the world's a completely different place, you know, yeah. and and uh, you know, I mean, in the seventies, you still you, you know, the Cold War still going on, right. even in the early eighties, the the Cold War still yeah 
going on. And you uh, have this idea of being a, a, a pilot, of maybe being a, a blue angel at some point, but you have all kinds of things that you need to do. I want to know actually what you felt when you got that pilot slot. Oh, relief, number one, uh, more <laughs> than more than anything, because I, I knew that this dream now had a had a chance, right? And uh, uh, and then excitement at the same time, because now it's like, all right, you know, you got to step it up. Um, what's funny, reflecting back though, and I think this will help, you know, a lot of people is so that dream hit me as a twelve year old boy, right? Uh, in the heart, not the head. By the way, that's yeah. I think big difference. And uh, I said, okay, now I really know what I want to do: fly jets off carriers, eventually someday. Um, be a blue angel, hopefully. But then, you know, you, you know, like any kid, you know, football, sidetracks you, whatever, right? You have different stuff. But I never lost that goal or that vision, I think is a better word, right? Um, I just knew that the path to get there may change, right? Uh, yet I knew there was a path, a la uh, try to get into the academies because that's a good start to getting um, a slot to try something. And there's other ways, right, by the way. And I got rejected. I mean, uh, the first time I applied to the academies, I got rejected for not for for being not medically qualified, surprised me. Had to go through a, a waiver process. First time they rejected me again. Had to go to Colorado for a year. I walked on, played football there because um, I knew it was going to take me a year to get through this process. Had a bunch of fun playing ball at Colorado and, and a school, but never gave up on the goal uh, and eventually got a medical waiver and, and, and I did get in. Uh, but it wasn't the way I expected, right? And I had a backup plan. I think that's important in, in life too. You know, my backup plan was joining the Marine Corps, uh, and they'd given me an air contract. Um, mm. So anyhow, there's just different ways to get to your goal. But once getting an academy, now you had four years to um, not only graduate but graduate in a way that it allowed the next part of the dream to come reality. And once mm. I got the pilot slide, it starts all over again. You start from ground zero, and they, um, you know, they, they send you to pilot training. In Pensacola, Florida, we call it the cradle of naval aviation. All <laughs> Navy pilots start there. And it's ground school, and they grade you for that. And the first person, you know, they, they're ranking you, right? And eventually, you start to fly what they call a T-34. It's a prop plane. And, uh, and they teach you basic flying. And at the end of that, it takes about six months, uh, they rank everybody again. You're getting graded on every flight, right? And again, person top in their class gets the pick. And you have really three choices at that point. Jets, props, or helos. Uh, and big difference, right? So if you want to fly off aircraft carriers, you have to get jets. Well, you could do a helo too, but in, in a different way. But anyhow, um, they're usually about the top third of the class once jets. They tend to go first. And I, I graduated number one, which, which was cool. And so then you move into the next slot, and then you do intermediate jet training in Beeville, Texas. I went out to the boonies because I wanted to be focused. I want. I did not want distractions. Turns out where I flew, Beeville, Texas, we had advanced jet training there. Uh, the Navy shut that base down uh, years ago and they made it into a prison and they didn't have to change much oh. to, to make oh, it my. into a prison, right? Um, it was way out in the middle of the boonies. Um, but I loved it. And you go through intermediate and advanced jet training, you're flying the A-4. You know, this is the airplane that John McCain got shot down on. I mean, it's a really capable jet, 720 degrees roll rate per second. You're learning how to not just fly the airplane, you're doing dogfighting, you're, you're dropping ordnance, you're landing jets on aircraft carriers. I mean, it's the full deal. And it takes you about the flying formation, it takes you two years. So end of the day, from the day you start to when you get your wings and they designate you as a naval aviator, it's about a two-year process of which you're graded every single flight, every single day. Even after you get your wings? 
Yes. Well, when you have, after you get your wings, it changes. So at that moment, now the next pecking order is, well, what airplane am I going to fly? So you're a pilot, and there's different jets. And most, most people want to fly fighters. Okay. And so again, they go to the top of the class and they say, uh, you know, uh, first person, what do you want? Now, if it's available, you get it. All right. But if it's not available, then you got to pick something else. And so I finished number one and I, I wanted F-18s. Now, this is the jet the Blue Angels are flying today, right? But at the time, it was super new and there was no young pilots flying this. They were only transitioning older, you know, F-4, very uh, seasoned pilots in this jet. But I'm like, hey, I might as well ask. So I asked and they said I couldn't get it. And, uh, and I didn't take no for the answer. I was like, wait a minute. You know, so I call the Pentagon. I think this story's in the book. You know, and I'm like, I call those, and I'm just a student pilot in Beeville, Texas. I call the Pentagon. I get through the whole switchboard. I get the head admiral in charge of all aviation detailing, and uh, I get him on the phone. And he's like, you know, I said, sir, this is Ensign Folia. I just graduated from flight school. I really want to fly F-18s. You know, how can I do it? And first off, he's like, he just pauses. This is a long pause, and I know he's thinking, who is this guy? And why is he calling me, right? But instead of chewing me out, he just, just did the opposite. He was like, you know, Ensign Foley, let me, let me check on some things and I'll get back to you. And the next day, I'm in the ready room. So all the pilots hang out. Phone rings. Duty officer goes, Foley, Pentagon. I pick up the phone. It's Captain Root. And uh, we're still friends today, by the way. He ended up being the CEO of an aircraft carrier, CEO of the Blue Angels. But at the time, you know, he, he mentored me. And he basically said, you know, in my two years of being in charge of all the real pilots, by the way, in the Navy, not you students at the time, um, no one's ever called me. And because you asked, I'm going to ask, I'm going to give you something. And, and he basically laid out the path on how to get the F-18s. He said, number one, you can't go now. You're too young. We're just not giving anybody that situation. But here's what you do. Fly the A-7, go to um, the Midway. Uh, it's for deployed in Japan. Those squadrons will be transitioning F-18s before anybody else. And I'm like, Golden. I got my ticket. So, um, so I select wow. A7s, but now again, the path changes because now you got six months of training on how to fly that airplane, how to really fight it. And you know how to fly, but how do you fight it? And at the end of that, they have a carrier qualifications, nighttime, hardest things, one of the hardest things I've ever done in life. And uh, I didn't do well that night. I mean, I actually um, remember they sat me down, they shut me down after a couple of scary landings, and they pulled me out of the cockpit. They basically said, you know, Gucci, that's my call sign. They said, uh, you know, uh, you better get your act together. You better show me something or, or you're done. And uh, I, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting conversation when someone after two years says, you either perform now or we, we can't use you. You know, you can't land on the jet, you can't land on a carrier, you're no good to the Navy. Right as a as a fighter pilot. So anyhow, um, I got a second chance. Went out the next night. Did okay. Didn't do great. But I didn't get this advance orders. So now I'm not on the midway. I'm I'm assigned to the carrier enterprise, which is coming back from cruise for the people who need more time. Right, someone who needs some time. Turned out to be the best place I ever was. I was stuck there for three years. I thought I'd be quickly out of A7s and um, and not stuck. I actually learned so much. Great squadron. Uh, eventually, out of that tour. Uh, did fairly well and became an instructor pilot. And then I, I became an instructor pilot in the F-18. Uh, so I finally got to that part of my dream, flying uh, out of El Toro, teaching Marines how to land jets on aircraft carriers, which was really challenging. And out of that group is when I got selected for the Blues. And the Blues, we take our, we usually select our pilots from Top Gun, the instructor ranks. And that's yeah. that's yeah, well, that that's a fascinating story. And like I, the idea of, I actually interviewed last year, Carrie Lorenz. Have you oh, ever yeah. met her? Yeah. Of course. 
you know, the idea of landing on an on an aircraft carrier that's not just bobbing up and down, but going sideways and and then let alone doing that during the day, but to try to do that at night. Right. So so you're landing, you're you're having this hard time, right? You're you're you are born to do this. And so you've had to be frustrated and having these conversations with yourself. And scientists believe that we have about 60 to 80,000 thoughts per day. You probably had about 80,000 thoughts per second as you're trying <laughs> to land this aircraft. And most of those, as you're getting this feedback from your, your, your superiors that you're just not performing, most of those thoughts probably were internalized. How did you process that? How did you, did you get to a point where you're by yourself and you're like, okay, I've got to, I've got to, I've got to change my mindset. I've got to do something different. I've, I've got to own this. Like, what did you do to get back on top? Yeah, I would say a couple of things. First off, most of the training was going really well. So I, you know, as you know, resiliency, I had a lot of positive experiences mm-hmm. to, um, to fall back on. Uh, right. and, and so I was, you know, highly confident I could do it. I just wasn't doing it that day. Right. Yeah. And, and that happens, you know, I guess with all of us at some point. So the answer to your question is that's where that doubt comes in. And I think mm-hmm. the idea of how do you overcome doubt? How do you come overcome fear? And so for me, in this case, um, and I love, we talked about Lou Tice, you know, before we, we both know him, um, you know, he talked about the negative self-talk that goes through your mind, right? So of totally. those 60,000, 80,000, you know, how many of them are, are negative? How many of them are positive? You can watch yourself. It's funny as heck, right? To watch mm-hmm. your own mind work. Mm-hmm. I, I just did a meditation this morning. I meditate every, every morning, uh, try to at least, and, uh, and, and you can catch yourself, right? So the answer to your question is in that case, in that one case, it was first just get a hold of your own thoughts, right? Mm-hmm. And say, wait a minute, you know, uh, don't go down the rabbit hole of, oh my God, I'm not going to make it. It's all for, you know, all over, you know, don't even go there. Just go, wait a minute. Okay. I got to uh, refocus, restabilize my own uh, self. And uh, usually quiet time helps for that, right? Mm-hmm. I remember being in the stateroom at that late night and, and just thinking about it. And, and then just uh, saying, okay, I know I can do this. You know, there's confidence there. I had the training. I can do this. And, you know, then I became excited. I was like, get me out there. Let me get that chance to prove myself again, whether it's in the football field or whether it's flying jets off aircraft carriers or in the Blue Angels. You always have moments that, that challenge you, right? And, uh, and so I, I think the key is... Um, a skill that I learned called compartmentalization. And to me, that is where you take these negative thoughts or whatever challenging you and you put them in the back of your head. I think about putting it in the back of my head, which my point is, is that I'm not going to be focusing on those right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and we used to have triggers uh, on the Blue Angels. And I've, I've instituted triggers in all my life, flying jets and aircraft carriers, where you can take yourself and get you in a highly state of focus, focus state mm-hmm. of mind. Mm-hmm. And um, anyhow, a lot we can we can explore there. But yeah, I, I think it's just a matter of of um, of really assessing your own state of mind and then um, putting it into a positive state of mind. As many of you know, Master the Key is out and it is making an impact and it is transforming the lives of the people who engage in the book, reading it and doing the exercises within the book. 
And so much so that we were actually featured, the book Master the Key was actually featured in Inc. Magazine as one of the top 14 books to fuel your growth this summer. And so I'm incredibly humbled by the response and by the coverage that it's getting and the response specifically from readers who are leaving reviews on Amazon, such as Jeff, who says it's a must read for people of all ages. I just read in a couple of hours a story that will last me for years to come. Mike Flynn wrote a compelling, engaging, can't wait for the next page story and used characters that are so easy to relate to. He shares so many important lessons in this easy to read and hard to forget story. There were times when I found myself thinking I knew these individuals despite them being fictional since they felt so real and normal. Mike presents many lessons for readers to absorb in a straightforward, digestible manner. Everyone who reads this book will come away better for it. And that simply sums up what a great book should do. Master the Key is a must read for anyone and everyone. So before you continue with this episode, be sure to hit pause, head over to Amazon, type in Master the Key and my name, Mike Flynn, and the beautiful cover will pop up and buy yourself a copy or two, pass them out to your friends and family, and get ready for life to change. You talk about Lou Tice, and he's definitely, the power of our words are incredibly important for us to recognize and acknowledge. Do you do affirmations every morning? You know, I do, but I do them in a slightly different way. I don't call them affirmations anymore. I was I was reading your 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 book and, and notes too about affirmations. Um, and I remember Lou taught teaching those all the time. I find that for me, I absolutely do them, but I've I've learned to do what I call an I am statement. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, I am blank. And um, and those are the positive affirmations, I guess you would call it that, that I'm reinforcing in my own life. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a mission statement, vision statement, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and it also involves others, not myself. I think this is mm-hmm. critical. It's not enough just to do your own I am statements. You know, it's like, you know, what is the impact you're making on someone else's life? And those are the affirmations that I, I do every day. Yeah, I do. The most important I am statement, I do the same thing. I, the most important I am statement that I, that I do every day is that I am worthy. Nice. You know, for me, because I think that the the greatest challenge that we face mentally, emotionally, is a is a sense of worthiness that we're worthy of the the, the challenges that we're going to face that day. That we are worthy of the victories that we are going to face that day. That we are worthy of the the failures and and showing people that we can overcome them that day. You know, mm-hmm. I love that you said that you have different triggers to dial in focus, and I actually actually I'm gonna. We're going to kind of jump ahead and then go backwards sure. because I don't want to lose that tra- train of thought. What you guys do as Blue Angels and the whole organization and, and Navy pilots and ge- fighter pilots in general requires such focus, like dialed in to a degree that there, there's nothing like it, really. I mean, life and death are on the line, billions of dollars of equipment. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff. Going on, and then of course, you know, you, as a Blue Angel, you've got the thousands of fans down below you that are waiting to be awed, right? And so you have all of these things that are happening, and so your focus has to be incredibly dialed in. So I'd love to learn number one how you guys do that, 
and how we can bring that into the into the everyday world. Because I think if we get to a, I think that the the one of the fastest ways to we were talking about Dr. Albert Bandura the, before we hit record, and one of the fastest ways to to prove to ourselves that that we are effective is by doing something that is so physically and mentally challenging that it requires our full attention. Because if we don't do that, then something is going to be damaged, either our body or other people. So I think that dialing in focus and and, and those triggers might be very helpful to people in everyday life. Oh, I love it. Yeah, yeah. Happy to go over some of that. So, in um, and I did it in different parts of my life, like uh, before football games. Of course, you know, you got the pregame and and this kind of stuff. But it really changes. And on aircraft carriers, you got the brief. It it really. I'll go straight to the Blue Angels because it was at extreme level. Just what you mentioned, right? So, um, and I think it's pecking order, right? You 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 learn how to get to these states. Uh, but in that state, some of it's foundational. We had structure. And the structure first off was we had a brief before we went flying. And a brief is when you, you get everyone together. You know, in my speaking engagements now and some of the, the consulting and training we do, I take people behind the scenes and I show them what we were doing because I have video of all this, right? And mm-hmm. it, it's amazing. This video of the briefing room will blow you away because uh, while we pull everyone together about two hours before the flight, uh, and we go over pretty much standard things like in any business or, or in any military operation, you would say, what's your objective? What are the safety things and whatnot? That's all pretty much standard. And, and, and we, we did that. But then we got into the difference, differentiator we were talking about, which was a group visualization. And we actually went through the entire air show. The boss would even use the same tone of voice of like, up we go. And on the G of go is when he was pulling back stick. And we would mimic that. I'd close my eyes. You start to fly the show uh, in your mind first. And we go through the whole show, okay, in minute detail. And, and that put us in a state of preparation. So it's not briefing at this point. It's preparation. You're getting your mind focused, right? Then I also realized, here's the key. After that state... You need a few minutes to relax, okay? So we purposely got everybody out of the room. Only the six pilots were there for the the deep stuff. And then um, then we took about five or 10 minutes where you got a drink of water. You know, you had your flight suit unbuttoned. You're you're just unzipped. You're you're just kind of chilling a little bit in a quiet state of mind. And then you need a trick because then it's time to, to put it on. And it's different for different people. Um, for us, you know, you're walking out to the crowd line. Right. And uh, and you, you see all the kids in the crowd and they're waving, you're waving back and, and you realize, wow, this is why we're doing this, you know, to, to inspire others. Uh, but again, now you're, you're still not focused because you're still, you know, the whole world is spinning around you, all this cool stuff. And so the trigger that we used was we marched down to our jets, we climbed in our jets, salute our crew chief and vice versa. And they just shake your hand and say, sir, the jet's ready to go. But again, you're still in this preparation. So we had the trigger was when the canopy comes down, all six jets, we'd always, we'd lower our canopies at the exact same time. And that trigger was, okay, um, the minute the canopy is closed, now you're in this high state of focus. It's like all the air got sucked out of the the, the, um, the cockpit and you're in this high state of focus. If there was a challenge you had in life, let's say you're having a challenge with a spouse or, you know, um, let's say another team member or, or you got a report that's due that, you know, you're late on. Who cares at that point? You just, again, compartmentalize, you put it in the back of your head and you say, for the next 45 minutes, I am going to be absolutely focused 
on what I need to do. Why? And like you said, to stay alive, number one. But that's never, that wasn't the issue. The issue was to do the best job you could do and to take and 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 not let your teammates down and then put on something that awed people. I loved I loved what you said, awe. And yeah. I think it was a physical and mental extreme focus every single day. And boy, I'll tell you, uh, once you once you do that, and I like Bandera, I didn't know he had said that, but um, it reinforces itself and it just keeps, you know, every day you, it's almost like adrenaline. You want that, you crave that opportunity again to prove it to yourself, but you know, you can do it. So it's not about proving it. It's like, let's go do this. Bam, 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 bam. Yeah. And once you've mastered that skill, you can use it in other aspects of your life. Yeah. Well, actually, Bandera didn't say the thing about physical. It's oh. just my, in my experience, I think that it's like, I think that the, one of the problems that we we face as a culture right now, whether it's whether you're an employee or an entrepreneur or whatever, is that we've outsourced our decision making. Yep. By and large, and so it creates this vacuum of of energy and and stuff that and and we lose our sense of effectiveness because we don't have to make decisions that have an impact anymore because so much so much of our life is automated today. And so one of the ways to, to combat that is by doing something that is physically challenging. I mean, you don't necessarily have to do something that's going to cause you to lose six pounds of sweat in 37 yeah. minutes like you guys, but you know, go do something that requires you to, to prove to yourself that your brain has physical control over your body and your environment, which, which we don't do often enough. But I digress. Yeah, yeah. I'm with you. One of the um, one of the things that you talk about is your first day going up as a Blue Angel, and you you realized that there was a something like the wings were overlapping or something, or or there was they weren't in the right position. And one of the things you said is that you were scared but not afraid. And I loved that idea, and I'd love to learn about what the difference is to you between being scared and not afraid. And why that's okay, and how you develop that kind of trust to bring it back to your full your full circle to your football days, where you're like, okay, I'm going to be the best DB, but I'm going to let the free safety do his thing, yep. and uh, and I'm going to do my thing. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about it in football first, because you just triggered something. Is I think the difference between being scared and afraid is is a sense of awareness, right, versus stuckness. So for me, you know, what is fear? I mean, we all we all experience fear. I think fear is an external force that feels like it's coming at you. And it's usually a misperception, by the way, but you feel it, right? And so for me, the result of fear is stuckness. You watch it. Watch it in yourself. Watch it in your teams. Heck, uh, you can see it in nations right now, right? Um, and, and so what's the difference between being scared? To me, scared is awareness. It's a good thing. It's when those little hairs stand up on the back of your neck. And it could be as simple as, you know, don't walk down a dark alley late at night, but also say, am I prepared and ready for the evolution that, that's about to occur? So I remember in football, you know, I was scared that I would get beat deep, okay? Because that's a touchdown, right? And you're one-on-one covering that receiver, which meant I'm aware of it. Okay, but I'm not afraid of it. And that's the big difference. Because once you become fearful, now you start to play defensive and, and you're no good, right? Um, so scared just means, hey, I need to do my job. It's important. Everybody's counting on me on that. And I'm counting on them to, to do what they do. The pass rush has to work, you know, and everyone's got to cover their zones. So there was this awareness of just the importance of it. Now, having said that, what when you're actually doing it, no, you're not even thinking none of that stuff. In fact, you're not even thinking. 
right? You know, the, the minute the ball snapped, or even before that, hopefully you're in a state of such focus that you don't hear the crowd anymore. You don't see this. And, uh, and that you've got to learn, by the way, because I remember playing in Michigan, 100,000 people and covering Anthony Carter at the time. And he was fast, man. He was faster than me. So I had to, I had to open up my cushion a little. And, uh, and I just remember, you know, so that's the scared. Hey, this guy's fast. Open up your cushion. That's being aware, right? But I looked around. I was like, wow, isn't this cool? And the next thing I know, he almost beat me deep. You know, and luckily they, they overthrew the pass. And I went, what the heck are you doing? I said, you know, get back in the game. Who gives a crap? If there's 100,000 or nobody. Um, you got to just, play. And that's what I did. Then the crowd went away and, and the game went really well. Same thing in the Blue Angels. It doesn't matter if it was a practice day or a show day. You die either way, right? So the, the, the key is, I don't care if there's one person out there or there's 100,000 or a million sometimes, I'm going to just do my job. I'm not going to change the way that I fly. And that, that becomes liberating. Once you realize that and you can control your mind that way, then you just have to execute. So we did this visualization, we did the triggers, and then then it became just fun. You're in the zone when you're executing. Are you are you basically you said you actually just said the word in the zone? So when you followed that recipe, would you basically get into kind of a flow state practically? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you mentioned that. It is a recipe, it is a flow state, and there's a way to do it, right? Um and so, yeah, you could feel yourself kick into this flow state. And it's basically, at least for me, in the blues, was takeoff maneuvers. I mean, up to then, you know, I'm still taxiing out, I'm doing checklists. We do have procedures and whatnot. Uh, and I'm dialed in at this point, but I'm not in a flow state because I, I, I can relax a little bit. We're still on mm -hmm. the ground, right? Mm -hmm. But the minute you go full afterburner, you do that high performance climb, you just, you know, as number six, you you do a low transition, which you just suck up the gear. You're right there on the runway. Uh, and then you full stick deflection straight up. Um, let me tell you, you're in the zone. You're dialed. I mean, I can feel, I can sense uh, just everything that airplane's doing. And in fact, what happens is you become one with the airplane. This idea of oneness, you know, we talk about, it was real. You know, if, if I'm learning, as I'm a student, I'm not one with that airplane. That airplane's huge, it's powerful, it's big. I mean, I'm, I'm like, holy crap, how do I even just keep this thing from crashing? But once you learn how to do that, now all of a sudden, it, it's like riding a bike. You know, I mean, really, it's a great example. Um, you're just doing it with a supersonic jet and it's mm. fun. You feel mm -hmm. like you're totally dialed in. Now, just keeping that state is, is a bigger challenge. When you actually talk about that, do you, can you feel your body physically reacting? reacting oh, I love it. Yeah, you could probably see it in me, you know, because we're yeah. doing a Zoom call, right? Yeah, I'm reliving it, right? And you're absolutely right. And I think that's critical in visualization is you bring it into an emotional state, not just a, an intellectual state. Yeah, I could feel it exactly. And that's why when I get my talks, because I, I use a lot of video, right? Yeah. I am reliving each story. I mean, yeah. people tell me this, you know, they go, oh my God, how do you keep that passion? How do you keep that inspiration? I'm like, it's easy. That's yeah. a, it's who I am. And second off, I'm reliving that. Yeah. Every single time. Yeah, it never leaves you for sure. Yeah, yeah. totally. I, I can see, I can sense that when I I've watched a few of your your keynotes, and you can sense it. Like you're right there. I mean, you're like back in that cockpit for sure. Yeah. Uh, what's your favorite maneuver? Do you have a favorite maneuver? Yeah, they were different ones. Um, my favorite one is what we call the tuck over roll because it was the most. It was the hardest. So it gets back to what we're talking about: challenging yourself. So even at a point where you're flying Blue Angel stuff, you um, 
you know, knife edge pass, come at each other a thousand miles per hour, closer, cross within a wingspan. I mean, you know, if you're one second off, you miss by two football fields, that kind of stuff. That that became second nature. I mean, that's just fun. You know, um, it's like a day landing on an aircraft carrier. When you're first learning it, it's really challenging. Then it becomes super fun. The one that never was fun, just like a night carrier landing is never fun. Really, you're, you're on the tip of your senses. At least you need to be. Otherwise, you know, you will die. Um, and uh, it was the, the tuck over roll. That's, here's the objective. It's so cool. It's uh, the lead solo, which I was both opposing and lead solo. So in this case, if you're number six, you, you, you're leading the formation in this case. The lead solo's got the harder job. He takes the wing. You're coming in. You're, you know, you're very close to another airplane, maybe about 10 feet. And then you go, ready, hit it. It's a simultaneous roll inverted. So now you're upside down. Most people are really uncomfortable upside down. But you're not upside down 100 feet off the ground. You're in formation 100 feet off the ground. And then you're flying towards the crowd. So it's a, it's a moving cheat, meaning you, you want to look like one airplane. The goal is to look like one, but you're upside down. Then right at the right moment, you say, ready, hit it. You do a 240-degree roll. You roll inside the belly of your airplane. You come out, you see the rivets of your teammate. If he or she were let up one-tenth of one G, you'd hit, right? And um, so you're in this amazing state Yet you have to be making corrections this whole time, thousands of corrections. And when it, when it comes off really well, it's like the biggest thing. And I've got video of this where it looks like one airplane. All of a sudden, we do this roll and, and, this, and me, I pop out in the back. And you're like, holy crap, how did that happen, right? And, and you and the jet are not going, holy crap. You're just going, yes, we did it. We nailed it, right? So that was always the most challenging. Oh man, I, I got chills just even like watching you describe this. I mean, people listening to it are obviously gonna gonna get that energy, but it's not just the six of you pilots. There are there's a whole organization beneath you, yeah, making what you just described possible for the audience to experience and to help you guys and gals perform at your best, right? Yes. So that you don't have to think about all of those things. So yeah. what does it take to create the organization that is the Blue Angels, which are a bunch of other men and women down on the ground. I love that you asked, what does it take? Uh, first, let me just define it, and then we'll get to that, because that's that's a really beautiful question. First off, what is the organization? So the, the Blue Angels are about 120 individuals. We've got you know six demo pilots to fly in the air. You have um, another 10 or 11 officers. So you got about 17 you know officers support in all this. And then you have 100 at least 100 of our maintenance troops. And these are the ones who are, are really the whole heart and soul of the team, right? They're, they're the ones supporting the jets, hydraulics, jet engine mechanics, I mean, all kinds of stuff, right? And so the point is you, you need to have a team, right? It's like even in sports, it's not just the players on the field. This is whole team concept business for sure, right? So the idea there was we want to select first off. What does it take? You better select right. You know, so it gets right down to how do you select your replacements? Now, here's what's interesting. On the Blues, we had half of our pilots new every year. So three of the six were new every year. Um, that's half your leadership team gone every year. A third of my support teams um, new every year. And that's mostly because we're just part of the Navy. The Navy says every three years you get a new job. We're constantly rotating people in and out. And that's good because you get new blood in, right? But it also requires real focus and training and mentoring, um, a constant learning. We're in a, we're in a continuous state of learning on the blues. And I, that's my life now. I'm in a continuous state of learning, continuous state of getting better. Um, and and at least I'm trying, right? And, and hoping so. So the idea here is select well, right? And I want to select for, uh, first off, what I call my glad to be here mindset. 
And that is someone who has got a purpose higher than self, someone who is there for a reason. In our case, we were ambassadors of goodwill. So this idea of a, of a, of a bigger mission. And I want someone who also is joyful about this, right? You know, it's it's an honor to be on the Blue Angels and, and we represent not just the Navy Marine Corps and the country, but I think we represent, you know, inspiration and greatness. So there's responsibility to that. So I want people who who care about that and can feel it, right? And and know that you so number one selection. Okay. Skills are easy. That's not that hard. You can find people, you know, who who are, are skilled, but I want someone who's bought in committed, right? So selection one. Second is training. We had a process where we bring new people in. You know, there was, you, you got a mentor, you got another pilot uh, on the team and uh, and you were mentored by someone who, who did this at a very high state and they were totally bringing you along because guess what? The next year you became that person, which is really cool, mm-hmm. is you became the mentor to somebody else. And, uh, and so there's this process that works there. But I think more importantly, and then of course we had certain amount of training flights and we had a way to conduct our things, but was even more important was this mindset, this mindset that I call glad to be here. And uh, and what I mean by that is a deep connection to uh, not only who you are, but why you're there and what's the impact you can make on others and doing it as a team. This glad to be your mindset starts with gratefulness and gratitude, but it goes well beyond that. Right. Uh, it's sometimes you were just glad to be alive, right? And you were you were glad to be with your teammates. Uh, but more importantly, you were glad to do something that made it a, an impact and, and a big difference on other people's lives. I remember the looks in the little kids' eyes, you know, and you could see hopes and dreams, right? Um, so uh, the mindset, the gratefulness, the way you approach the the the, the day really matter. And then you had what we called operational excellence. We had briefs and debriefs. We had ways to do this. And uh, anyhow, you know, I lay it out all, all out on the book. But but I think what was really cool here with us is you get to the organization was a culture of excellence, mm-hmm. and that's the key. It was a culture, and you um, first were had to uh, buy into the culture, mm-hmm. and then you had to um, actually make it better. And that was cool. Every year, I think the, the culture gets better and better, not just in the blues, but I think this is what I'm trying to do in business and life too. This episode is brought to you by the Lawton Marketing Group, a full-service advertising and design agency specializing in websites, social media, apps, logos, and more. Based in Oklahoma, they work with clients across the nation from small businesses to large corporations and everything in between. You can find them right now on the web at www.lawtonmg.com or call them at 580-275-2063. Connect with them now for a complimentary competitive analysis of your website. Just tell them the impact entrepreneur told you to call. I love that you that you talk about purpose whenever you in your book and in in your keynotes because I think that and what you do the way you do it is you break it out kind of on a moment by moment basis because I think that people can get overwhelmed by the idea of purpose. What is my purpose? Right? What is my role? Right? That's a very big question that a lot of people grapple with every day. But what you have come to realize and and lived out every day and continue to and all of your team and all of that all of that is that the purpose of anything is to facilitate something in the moment right so like the purpose of your coffee mug and my coffee mug is to facilitate putting a, a nice caffeinated warm beverage into our 
our, our body, right? In that moment. But it could easily, you know, have a pen in it also and it still be facilitating something. Nice. But it's it's moment by moment, right? And so when you when you look at it from that, it be, the whole purpose idea becomes less daunting. And you even said it mm-hmm. like a, a few minutes ago that as soon as that canopy comes down, you five minutes ago could have had a hard, a, a very difficult conversation with your spouse or whatever. Probably not five minutes ago, but let, let's say an hour ago. You know, mm-hmm. a difficult. You know, your kids like you burnt the house down or whatever. <laughs> but yeah. as soon as that as soon as that canopy comes down, your purpose in that moment is to facilitate something. Yes. And I love that you talk about that. And I love how you break that down both in your, your keynotes and in, in your book. One of the things, speaking about purpose, that, that was kind of crazy that I, I had never thought about was when you, you were flying into Russian airspace ah. to go on your way to go do a performance, right? Yep. And, and first of all, you transitioned into Russian airspace and the Russian ground control radios you. And then, you know, they tell you to proceed after a couple tenuous moments. And then you see off in the distance some MIGs coming at you at a thousand miles an hour. What the heck was that like? I mean, there must have been just so much going on in your head. Yeah. You know, first off, it was a realization that this is historic. I don't know if you've ever been part of something that really is history. That was is the first time ever. You know, Cold Cold War had just ended, right? I mean, in 89, the Berlin Wall had just come down and you could see countries changing the foundations. It this is 1992 when we took the team to Moscow. It took that long to open up, you know, the and I'll never forget it because it took a lot of planning, as you can imagine, you know, State Department, Department of Defense, White House. I had to get it through all that kind of stuff. But when we're at, and then coordinating, I was the operations officer, which meant, you know, COO, you gotta, you gotta coordinate all this stuff. So we had pre-coordinated with the Russians, of course, airspace and all this, but all the coordination was nothing compared to that moment, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we we take we took off out of Finland. And uh, we had just done an air show there. And I remember going over the straits there. They're beautiful, by the way. And uh, and all of a sudden, you know, you can see the Russian landmass, right? And uh, we're at like 30,000 feet. And uh, we check in to Russian airspace. And you can hear the, the Russian accent on the uh, other end of the radio. And, and uh, I remember... Uh, the boss checking in saying, Moscow uh, Center, this is Blue Angel number one. And, you know, it's pretty much standard. And they come back, oh, Blue Angel number one, Moscow Center. And uh, Roger, you know, flight level 300. And then, um, and that's standard stuff. And and then all of a sudden you hear this, uh, Blue Angel number one, uh, what type of aircraft are you? And I'll never forget this. The boss was so cool. He paused. He goes, well, we have eight Navy F-18s. And there's <laughs> dead silence on the other other end and that normally there's not silence for that long right you could tell the phones are ringing you know going back to moscow whatever who knows and uh comes back about 30 seconds later uh continue you know and uh, <laughs> we had already had um had got the court uh, the coordination but the point is that you know you're starting to feel this right and the little hairs are standing up and i think about you know it wasn't that long ago i remember standing in uh Kabinka, the master jet base, and being also right down there in Moscow, right at the, the square. And, you know, thinking that, you know, wasn't that long ago, we were actually planning to target this. And it's not, now we're not targeting it. This is friendship, right? And it was so cool to feel that. And then all of a sudden, you see on our radars, um, little blips come up. And it's the, um, 
the and you see that you know it's an SU twenty seven, a MiG twenty nine. They're coming to intercept us, which we had planned, right? But still, yeah. it's cool, right? To feel this, and you're like going, "Wow, this is awesome!" And um, and then they join up on our wings, and now I'm looking over, and this Russian pilot's right on my wing. He's waving. I wave at him. He waves at me, and 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 you realize that you know this is special. This is awe-inspiring. Uh, and it was cool. I mean, I'm not kidding you. The little hands, hairs are standing up. In fact, I remember Thumper, my wingman, said, Gucci, stop looking at the Russians. You know, you know get back into your, your cockpit, right? You know? Yeah. And then we've got video footage of this, which is unbelievable, of us flying into Kabinka Air Base, the master jet base. It's the six of us, and we got two SU-27s on the wingtip, another two MiG-29s. There's 10 of us coming in over the field, and the Russians peel off because they're demonstration pilots. And we peel off, and we land the jets, and we get out of the cockpit. There's a band playing. The Russians had their military band playing the U.S. national anthem. It wasn't perfect, but it was perfect to me because mm. they were just trying, right? It was unbelievable feeling, unbelievable. So unbelievable feeling you land you have this wonderful euphoric experience, and then the air show almost doesn't happen. Yeah, there you go. Nice story. So um, actually, the, the euphoric experience, what really made it special was not just the band playing and all this pomp and circumstance. Then all of a sudden, they, um, all of a sudden we just got swarmed by kids. They had, they had all these kids there. And there's pictures of me holding little girls and boys in my arm, and, and we're swarmed by kids. And it was so cool. Because you realize, wow, you know, people. And when I left Russia, what I realized after spending a lot of time with them is that we're all more similar than we are dissimilar. You know, this idea of an enemy is a bunch of crap. You know, um, we, there should be no enemies in the world. I don't see, you know, I, all I have is allies, you know, whether mm-hmm. it's in speaking, whether it's in business, whether it's in life, you know, um, we're all trying to, to be happy and do, do, do good stuff. But so to be swarmed with those kids was amazing. But yeah, then what happens is now you kick back into, okay, operations mode. We're supposed to do an air show. It's going to be over Moscow. And um, all of a sudden, um, this general comes in. And he says, oh, we have a slight problem. You know, when they say slight problem, it ain't slight, right? And uh, I said, well, what do we got? And he said, well, you can't fly inside the beltway. And basically, Moscow's got a beltway like Washington. And they had created a no-fly zone, just like we have over the White House now after no 9-11. But they, they extended it out to the whole beltway. Well, the air show that we were doing was right on the edge of the beltway. So half of our airspace was inside. And that's, we need that. That's where you, you rendezvous and you get your things. So I'm like going, you know, I'm the observation officer. I said, you know, well, we need that airspace. You know, we, we can't fly without it. And so he's like, okay. So he gets on the phone. He's yelling into the phone and yelling at somebody. I'm thinking, oh, this is great. This guy's going to get this change. Hangs the phone up, says, sorry, couldn't do it. And I'm like, what? And so uh, we, we elevate this up to the, you know, all the diplomats that actually went up to the highest levels of government. And it came back, no, you know, so now we got a choice. You know, and that is, are we going to not fly, which would be a total embarrassment? You know, he flew all the way out there. Or, um, you know, are we going to modify our show? And, and that's not something you do in the middle of the season normally, you know. And I remember the boss and I were talking and we actually, um, you know, considering the safety aspects, of course, and all that. But we went, you know, I think, boss, we could do that. And we mapped out, we changed our whole show right there on a napkin. And we then flew it uh, the next day, but it was a it was an interesting dilemma in one's life, right? So yeah, that, it almost didn't happen, but it did. Yeah, fortunately, fortunately, yes. So one of the special things about that gold helmet that you guys are honored to to wear as a sign of what you what you're doing is that incredible gold visor that enables you 
to stare directly into the sun. And as you recounted in one of your keynotes, that that's where you see um, Neil Armstrong reflecting back in Buzz Aldrin's visor. It's the same visor, same same design. Yeah, and it enables you to look directly into the sun. So. I would love for you to share a moment where a moment in your life that required you to use that kind of visor to stare directly into the sun with the most courage. I love that question. It's never been asked of me before. First, the tactical aspect in in aviation, it's easy, right? I mean, I'm going to go somewhere else here quickly, but uh, lots of challenges, airplanes, about to blow up, you know, doing a test hop, whatever. And, um, you know, you just do your job. It's not hard. I find extremist situations are not hard at all. Um, you just do what you're trained to do and, and you do it. Like I, I, I hit my, my wingman once, knocked off a piece of my wing. I'm like pointed straight down at the ground, missing a wing. I'm like, ah, what the heck? You know, there's backup systems. <laughs> you know, and you do, you figure it out. Right. So that stuff maybe is, is one example, you know, where, yeah, you got you got, you got something changed, you know, catastrophic. Right. And you deal with it. Hopefully you've trained. Sometimes it's stuff you've never dealt with in your life. And that's the harder part, right? When something hits you that you never dealt with before in your life. So for me, staring down the gold visor in a in a more life real message is uh what happened uh on a date we all know 9-11. You know, the um I actually was um, I had been gotten out of the military. I had gone to Stanford Business School, worked in venture capital, I started a, a company called Centerpoint Entertainment, and we were going to be the NASCAR of aviation. So do what NASCAR had done, but with aviation, air shows. And, and in fact, Red Bull's doing it now. You can see the Red Bull air races. But I was up um, doing this before Red Bull. And I'm uh, uh, in New York, closing a deal with ESPN, equity deal on, um, I'm putting this whole thing together on a date that became infamous, and that was 9-11. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, so I was there when the towers came down. I remember seeing it. I remember running towards the towers, not away, just trying to figure out there's something I could do to help, uh, and there was nothing. You know, um, it was it was amazing. Uh, but I remember that that next day, you know, that evening was actually a state of calm. You know, I stayed in the city, and it was amazing calm. Everybody was so peaceful and grateful. Um, it was beautiful, actually, and which is true in battlefields too, by the way. And 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 so I was like, wow, this is pretty cool. Uh, and then my but my business deal blew up that day. I'm not going to start an aviation entertainment company after 9/11. And I had 300 and $63,000 of my own money in there. And you know, you mentioned you had some financial struggles. I was you know, that was going to be bankrupt me. I mean, and I'm like, "Oh, well, okay. Got to figure this one out." But it then gets worse. Uh, about 2 weeks later, the woman I was dating at the time and I was hoping to marry dumps me, okay? So now I'm like, "Oh, okay, here you go. Now I got no job." No future, I uh, thought, which I, mean, I had a future, of course. Uh, and, you know, no relationship. And that's tough, man. You know, we've all had that. That's staring at a gold visor. That's everybody. You know, that's, mm-hmm. that's, that's not a test pilot. You just mm-hmm. got life challenges, right? And, uh, you know, it's just like, okay, I'll take it one step at a time and, uh, and I'll deal with this. And the hardest for me is always relationships. It's not mm-hmm. business. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you, know well, you deal with that. And then you, um, then you figure out, well, okay. Uh, what what else are you going to do in life? You know, because this thing's gone away, and uh, and you just work your way out of it. And it turns out, it, it took me really about two years to dig out of that hole, but um, it was a beautiful two years, and uh, learned a lot about myself. And it actually put me on the path today of doing what I'm doing now, which is I never dreamed of, mm-hmm. I never planned it, 
Uh, it mm. wouldn't have happened if that other stuff had happened. And yeah. it's more gratifying. So yeah, that's a gold visor story. I, I love I love that story. Thank you for sharing it. It's funny. I mean, it's not funny, but it's 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 not surprising. I, I literally published an article yesterday about how to respond to life's chance encounters. Wow. Like on it. on uh, Thrive Global. And that is, you know, the only thing that goes as planned any in any day is that is the time that we've set our phone alarms to go off in the morning. You know, after that, everything else is left to chance and our responses, right? To it. Even, even even when even in the Blue Angels, when you guys are flying, you even said that, you know, you're you're still making thousands of corrections along the way, right? You still have yeah. well, just I want to hear what your article is real quick, but um just to tee you up. We used to have a saying, you can brief the show. We did. And we had some contingency plan and all that. The minute you get airborne, things change. Yeah. And that's real life. And just like you said, alarm goes off. You may have a plan for that day, but I'm telling you, the minute you get out of bed, by the way, I always step out left foot forward. It's, it's another trigger. Um, yeah. and, um, the, the, the day's magical. Uh, things change. And yes. uh, But what did you say? What did you say in your article? I haven't read well, it. no, I, I, I said, well, Chance, you know, we, we know her by different names, right? I gave her a character, Chance. We know mm-hmm. her by fate. We know her by misfortune. We know her by good luck. We know her by blessings and disguises. We know her by events, people, disasters, crises, right? Like those are all chances, right? And I, and I give some examples of some people who I interviewed or who I've had conversations with who share their chance, a, a particular moment where they had to to respond to the way that chance showed up. So one was a guy named Alex Boyer, who was originally from Nigeria, uh, raised in the UK, wanted to be a musician, was down on his luck, was eating a sandwich out of a trash can. And a stranger comes up to him and knocks the sandwich out of his hand, basically says, you're better than this. You know, So Alex had the opportunity at that moment to reach back into the trash can or take a different step. Right? He took wow. a different step. And now his his music, he's a performance artist out of Utah, and his his music videos that he's been a part of have been viewed almost a half a billion times now at this point. You know? Wow. And and he's opening up most recently, he's opening up, he's doing a show for Jay Leno, opening up for Jay Leno in Vegas. You know, so like that's just one example, right? Then then you take that, you you go to Ernest Shackleton, right? The yes. Shackleton story. You you know. The guys sail down there. They have a mission. They have a vision of what they're going to accomplish. Their boat gets stuck in the ice and ultimately crushed. And Ernest Shackleton is faced with the opportunity to respond to the way Chance showed up in the form of a disaster in a way that would go down in history. Right? We would not know Ernest Shackleton the way that we know him if the endurance didn't get crushed by the ice. Um, right? And the same thing, you we wouldn't know you the way that we know you if those things didn't happen. So everything works out. Like we have to, we we have the ones that so the article teaches that there are three ways to prepare for chance for for a chance encounter. Yep. The first the first one is is to listen, right? To listen for her, right? Nice. The second one is to expect her to show up. Like and the third one is to act when she does. I like it. Yeah. You're brilliant, man. I love it. Uh, thank you, brother. So as we wrap up our conversation, which has been so incredible, I mean, we're just touching the iceberg and people can go get fearless success and read all about the leadership lessons and the organizational lessons that you teach um, in this powerful book. 
And I want to make sure that people know where they can go connect with you and pick up the book. So why don't you say where they can go interact with you online? Yeah, um, the best place is just go direct to my website, johnfoleyinc.com, johnfoleyinc.com. The reason I say that is not only can you buy the book there, we've bundled another book called Breaking Belief Barriers, which is oh, wow. very interesting to you. And um, and we bundle that in so you can get two for the price of one, right? Uh, but of course, you know, go to Amazon. We're an Amazon bestseller there. You can do that. Uh, go to the, we're in all the bookstores now and uh, including the airports, Barnes and Noble. So I think it's go wherever's convenient for you. But uh, my hope is that you just you just take some of these lessons and your book too, by the way, and and apply them in your own life. You know, make a difference for someone else. Mm, absolutely, I love the the other book too, breaking belief barriers. You know what the word believe actually means? The root word of believe. No, tell me. I love it. Love. Really? Yes. Leave. Believe. Leave is a German rooted word. Mein Lieb. So. Huh? It's it's love. It's it's its origin is love. Oh, that's so cool. Thank you for sharing that. That is so cool. Yeah. So you know, when when you are led by your heart, which is love, your beliefs take on a whole different a different tone, don't they? Yes, they do. Yes, they do. Wow, I love uh, that. <laughs> so as as you as we were talking about before we hit record, I always conclude each episode with the same three questions. The first question is if you could take a skill set that you currently possess. And I'm going to be curious how you're going to answer this because you have some pretty awesome skills. So if you could pick a skill set that you currently possess and turn it into a superpower, mm-hmm. you've already done some superpower-like things, what would, what would it be? Yeah. Um, you know, now it's being grateful, the gratitude. Uh, that's, that's actually my superpower. All right. Mm-hmm. Um, and and really learning that gratefulness opens the changes the way you see the world and the world changes and then you, then the way the world sees you changes too. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, I love I love the idea of gratitude and gratefulness uh, and then make it real in your life. I do every morning. I call my glad to be or wake up. I wake up every morning and say number one, what am I grateful for? Uh, and you know that's the present moment. Then I always go back and I did this with my wife this morning. Uh, we're in Sun Valley, Idaho. It's a beautiful day. Actually, it was below freezing here. It's twenty six degrees today. It's crazy. Yeah, and this is late late June, right? Um, and uh, but I was grateful. You know, we we went out and saved the plants the night before and all that. Uh, but so I went over that. Then I said, well, what? See, this is the other technique I use. I say, what I'm grateful for in the present moment. What I go back 24 hours. Say, what happened yesterday? They have something to be grateful for. Because as you and I both know, the human brain doesn't care if you're actually experiencing something the first time or remembering it. So mm-hmm. we, again, I'm planting positive seeds, right? And I go back and I remember all the good things from yesterday, people, events, and then I go forward in my day. And I think about others, not myself. So you were the first thought that hit my head. I said, man, we have this great conversation with Mike. I hope it goes well for him. And, and then I've got my team meeting coming up after this. And we've got debriefs with clients and all this kind of cool stuff coming up. And I'm like, wow, you know, I'm just setting the day with a gratitude. So that's my superpower. Oh, I love that, man. That's powerful. Yes, gratitude is definitely a superpower. It's, you know, it's, it's become, uh, gratitude has become like this uh, like overused thing in the entrepreneurial world because nobody's doing it intentionally, right? Right. You know, but when you put intention behind anything, it becomes powerful. Love you know? that. Yeah. yeah. The next question is, uh, what are three lies that we tell ourselves that prevent us from performing at the capacity which we are created to perform? 
Well, I think the first that hits my mind is, you know, you're not enough, right? I mean, whatever, right? Whatever challenge you're, you're having is, oh, I don't have the skills. I don't have the drive. I don't have the money. I don't have the time. I mean, it's the, it's the lack of mm-hmm. mentality. That's a lie, right? Mm-hmm. So um, I think that happens all the time. Um, I think maybe on the other side that just hits my head is um, that we don't uh, go the opposite side of that is being overconfident in a, in a stupid way, right? And uh, and to me, that's complacency, right? Mm-hmm. And to me, the reason I say it's a lie is is complacency sits it sets in when you're not aware, right? And you get too comfortable, and and I think you're lying to yourself, and you don't even know it, and that's mm-hmm. the problem. It's a blind spot. And mm-hmm. when you hit that blind spot, you know, look out, right? Could be texting in a car. We all know that's not good to do. I challenge myself not to do it, but you know, I mean, it's still a challenge, right? But the mm-hmm. point is complacency, I think, mm-hmm. is a, is another big lie. And then I think for the third one, and by the way, I've never, you know, you didn't preload these questions. So yeah. I kind of cool. Is I think the lie is you you don't have to. Trying to think about how to say this, I, I think that let me go with the with the positive first. Is that you know if you want something for yourself, then you got to help somebody else get it too. You know you, you got to give to receive, and that's mm-hmm. that's the positive side, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm saying is that I try to say you know really consciously, intentionally. Let's say you're trying to make your book a bestseller. Well, find someone else and help them make a bestseller. You know, let's yeah. say you're trying to get more speaking events. Well, help somebody else, which I'm doing right now. I got this great doctor friend, climbed Mount Everest, but also is 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 saving lives in in the Himalayan cataract project where they bring eyesight to people. It's part of our foundation. We we support him and others. And I'm trying to you know kick off his speaking career, right? So the key is 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 to help others. And I think the lie would be that you know you. It's it's you just got to get what you want. That's not it at all. Mm-hmm. You got to give what you want first. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, dude, I love that. That's so true. The last question. It's a hundred years from now, and you've left a set of instructions for a world class sculptor. This guy is the is the lead solo pilot equivalent of sculptors in the world, and you've left a set of instructions for him to create. A piece that answers this question: How will John Foley measure his life? What would that sculpture look like? Yeah, I would. It's it's easy. It's your hat. It's impact, right? Mm. I mean, what was the impact that I was able to make on others? And so the sculpture, and I love the idea you you brought up a, a sculpture. It would not be of me. <laughs> mm. A sculpture would be of the impact. That it generated in the world. And mm-hmm. I do mean the world. I mean globally. I mean something that made a difference in a big way. Mm-hmm. And I would say um, that it's gonna blow your mind. It's not it's bigger than we even can comprehend at this moment, mm-hmm. you know, hundred years from now. Yeah. Uh, I think back to the analogy uh, where we all thought the world was flat. Wasn't that long ago. <laughs> yeah, true. That was the thinking. And we laugh now because that's yeah, crazy. Well, it wasn't that long ago we had pictures of the earth, early 60s, right? And, uh, or the 60s. And, um, you know, what is going to be our thinking 100 years from now about mm-hmm. potential, about mm-hmm. the human mind? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, what, that's what the legacy that I think that sculpture is going to create. And it'll be infinite, it won't be a, a fixed thing. 
potential. John Foley, thank you so much for joining us on the Impact Entrepreneur Show and inspiring and breathing life into us and reminding us what we are capable of achieving if we put our mind to it, if we're grateful, if we are serving others and willing to to not just dream, but be willing to suffer the cost of pursuing that dream. Thank you, Mike. Hey, you, you're you a blessing to the world. I appreciate it. Keep it up. Glad thank to be you. here. Thank you to this week's guest and thank you for listening. If you missed any of the key points and highlights from my conversation, we've got you covered over at theimpactentrepreneur.net forward slash podcast for show notes to each and every episode. And while you are there, check out Flynn Wealth Strategies and Insurance Solutions. You can do that by visiting flynnwealthstrategies.com. The Lot Marketing Group and the Podcast Masters, we could not do this show without them and with all of their support. Now, until next time, go make an impact. Impact.